Hi, this is uh, the Technology Trends uh, se session. Uh, my name is Anurag Gupta. I run uh, Analytics, RDS, and Aurora for AWS. Um, so this is an unusual talk for me. Normally, I do some sort of geek, uh, geek dive on distributed systems and databases. And this is a little bit uh, of a more forward-looking talk on what I believe the trends are that are sort of driving data and analytics over let's say, the coming 10 years or so. So if I do it right, you'll agree with about 70% of what I say, and you'll think I'm you know, insane about the other 30%. So you know, we'll see how that goes. So you, know, you may have no seen this uh, uh, cover from The Economist and some other thing where it's basically talking about the world's most valuable resource moving from oil to data, and you know, it kind of makes sense that that would be the case, that uh, things are moving towards data in an information account uh, economy. So, and you know, this is, I think, a very telling slide that uh, shows the world's five largest uh, companies by market capitalization uh, from you know, 2001 to 2018. So there's been a lot of movement since I had to submit my slides in two, for 2018. So don't pay attention to the market caps there, but the sequencing is uh, roughly correct. So, uh, but you can see that in 2001, you know, there was one tech company, one a bank, one retailer, one gas company, and uh, one um, uh, conglomerate. Um, go to 2006, there are two oil companies, a conglomerate, a tech company, and a bank. Go to 2011, there are three oil companies, a bank, and a tech company. 2016, something happens where it's all tech companies. And it's a very specific type of tech company. These are all data-centric companies. And you know, 2018, it's largely the same. Not uh, a great deal has changed. Um, so that, uh, that's interesting, and I think it reflects the movement of how people value data in this world. In particular, I mean, I'd ask the question, um, who knows, uh, who can recommend a song to you better? Apple or your best friend from high school? Who knows your wants, needs, desires better? Google or your spouse? Now, it's hard to say, right? It's, uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, but what do we mean by a data-centric company? What do we sell? How do we make money, right? It's very clear what you sell when you're selling oil, right? If you're collecting data, what do you sell? So um, here's a small thing from C-SPAN uh, where somebody's uh, talking about that. We believe that we need to offer a service that everyone can afford, and we're committed to doing that. Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see. That's great. So, you know, that's, I think, an interesting point in there. And, We'll talk about that in a little bit uh, more detail as we go on. Um, but um, you know, if you take one thing away from this talk, 
It's that if we're all turning into data-driven companies, if we really believe that that's what people value, then you, we've got to start thinking about data as an asset to our business, not as a cost. And so, you know, that starts by saying, hey, let's stop throwing data away. Let's make it available to more of the users in our organizations. And let's arm them with more uh, data processing technologies, right? Now, that sounds good, but it's actually super hard. So, because there's a lot more data than people think. What, you know, I've been in this business for a long time, and my estimate is that data is growing about 10x every five years. That's across industries and so on. And when you're making a data replatforming decision, in general, that decision is uh, valid for about 15 years. And people often argue with me about it and then ask them, hey, you're moving away from, let's say, Teradata. Um, when did you make that decision to move on to it? And it's right in there. And, uh, you know, how much has your data grown over the past 15 years? And so I think, you know, it's one of these things where people can predict the past really easily, but they can't really predict the future very well, and they somehow think things level out. And at least to date, over the last 30 years, it hasn't. And the point of that is, is that if you multiply the 15 years with the 10x growth every five years, that means your platform decision needs to scale 1,000x from where it is today. If you've got a petabyte today, you're going to have an exabyte in 15 years. If you've got a terabyte today, you're going to have a petabyte uh, in uh, 15 years. Second problem is that there are more ways to analyze data than ever before. Hadoop wasn't a thing 15, uh, 11 years ago. Elasticsearch wasn't a thing eight years ago. Presto wasn't a thing five years ago. And uh, Spark wasn't a thing four years ago. Now, think about how important those are as part of your data processing ecosystems today, right? So that's interesting because the innovation in data processing engine is almost something you need to defend against or, in other words, you know, sort of architect your way to be able to support what's coming in the future, right? And then there's this third issue where, you know, we all want to democratize data and we all want to make it available to more users. And at the very same time, we want to limit access because that's how we get compliance, that's how we get audit, that's how we ensure security, right? So that's pretty challenging, all three. And that's one of the things that's driving people to data lakes. Sorry, this thing's is going to build for a while. Let me just keep going. Um, okay, I'm going to assume that it stops here. Because what data lakes let you do is already today you can support exabytes of data. And it separates the notion of where you store data and how you transform data from how you um, access it and how you manipulate it, right? So you load it, transform it, and catalog it once. The data is available to a multitude of tools. And the second key point I'd ask you to take away from this talk is, is that you really have to use, rely on open formats and open APIs. Because I don't know what the next great tool that's going to be out there is. I'm pretty sure it's going to support Parquet or ORC or you know, JSON or whatever. It's not necessarily going to support whatever random, you know, like binary format that is highly optimized inside 
some other tool, right? That's a path to lock in. So uh, Andy announced uh, lake formation uh, earlier today. You can sign up for the preview, small ad there. And there are basically three components to lake formation. First, we have a bunch of blueprints that help you uh, build and transform and deploy your data. You know, uh, We have a bunch of security policies so that your security can be applied on the data lake itself, uh, not on the access paths into the lake. And that's another thing that's necessary. One of the reasons people are kind of stuck in their data warehouses today is that uh, that's where their centralized security is. That's where their centralized catalog is and so forth. So my view is, is that at least for the next 15 years, data lakes are the new um, data warehouse and data warehouses are the new data marts, right? So you're going to be doing subject-based analysis there. And so that means that you need to control your data and do the auditing and so forth near the center. And so what we're doing is, is we're generating, we're inside our catalog, we, you know, we allow you to define policies, including based on um, tags like PCI, PII, et cetera. And, um, then at that point, you can say, like, Unregs allowed access to PII data, but only for his employees, right? And uh, so on. Um, and then that policy is applied across all of the tools that access. Because what we're doing is, is we're wrapping the surveys that access to basically filter out the rows and columns you're not allowed to see. And uh, we're, at, we're also doing that uh, using a JDBC driver or ODBC driver for your SQL-based access. So, you know, just basically being in that query path gives us the ability to control the access as well as audit, as well as do things like data masking and pseudonymization and so forth over time. So we're pretty excited about it. It's, um, you know, obviously it's a service that gets better over time as we improve. The last uh, big portion is that as data gets bigger, it becomes very hard for humans to manipulate it. Right? And so one of the biggest problems there is cleansing your data. So we're really moving towards a machine learning-based approach, starting with uh, deduplication of data and record linkage between data. But you know, that's, again, going to expand as time progresses. So, so how that works, it's basically saying the same thing. You know, to build data quickly, you know, we're trying to identify, crawl, and catalog your sources. You know, and uh, do that more dynamically and using machines, right? I mean, no one's sitting there, you know, like the difference between old, old scale uh, school Yahoo and Google was that Google crawled while Yahoo had a bunch of editors defining that uh, directory structure. And then the data got too big and, you know, one clearly ate the other. Um, and then also to ingest the cleanse of data and transform it into optimal formats behind the scenes based on access. Um, we talked about uh, security management, enforcing encryption, defining access policies, policies. And if we can, uh, we're in the path for all of the accesses we can clearly audit, uh, you know, regardless of what tool you're using. And um, we're really interested in providing a, a self-discovery uh, environment so you can just use a search mechanism to find what data is where. Okay. And that uh, sort of gives you, uh, you know, sort of a screen grab of 
what our database analytics and now blockchain uh, picture looks like. And you know, it's looking at that rough layer cake, it's you know, data movement at the bottom, the uh, storage and lake uh, capabilities in the middle. Uh, glue is an important part of that, both for ETL and for cataloging. And then um, a variety of different databases and analytic tools and blockchain capabilities and next there, step there. And then above that, we also think of uh, AIML as a core part of your data architecture. Unless you get the lowest layers clean, it's very hard to do anything with automated reasoning. And you know, those are our tools on the side. On the other side, you can see that you know, we're retailers at heart. We believe in you know, selection. We believe in low prices. We believe in fast delivery. So um, you know, that carries over to AWS as well. And you know, in this particular case, you'll see that there are a ton of marketplace offerings in each of these areas as well. So here's a picture uh, showing you the, some of the recent announcements. Uh, um, lake formation you heard of this morning. In Redshift, we've added uh, concurrency scaling, so you can uh, add cluster capacity as your demand grows and shrinks. Elastic resize, so you can resize in minutes as opposed to hours. Uh, we're adding embeddability of the dashboards you generate in QuickSight, as well as ML-based insights. You heard about blockchain this morning, DynamoDB transactions, as well as the ability to automatically scale uh, that up and down. You've heard about time stream this morning, QLDB, um, global database capabilities in Aurora, as well as uh, Amazon RDS on VMware. So you know, those are the key database-centric announcements this morning. And um, here are some places that you can go to if you want to learn a bit more uh, about these slides. And I'll just hold on this for a minute in case you want to read it rather than trying to talk through it. Okay, I think people have their phones down now. So, so uh, you know, let's look at a few uh, companies and how they're using data lakes and what that uh, is doing for them. So Epic Games, you're familiar with Epic Games, you know, Fortnite, you know, who doesn't play Fortnite? Uh, and you know, what they're really interested in is uh, creating a constant feedback loop for their designers based on the things that their players are doing. And you know, that's actually not very specific to the gaming industry. It's something we all benefit from having regular constant feedback as long as we can make our delivery cycle fast the way they can, right? And um, you know, what they're really focused on is ensuring high engagement, right? Because that's customer sat and that yields more time spent on their game. And so what they've kind of moved towards is um, a model where they have their game servers and clients and so forth, and that goes through a Kinesis stream into two different pipelines. One that's near real time, which basically they're pushing through Spark into DynamoDB and out into Grafana uh, for access. And the other one in from a batch perspective where it's going into their data lake and, uh, and then going out into, in their case, Tableau and ad hoc SQL. And the important, the key part of this step, I think, is 
the telemetry is all connected, uh, collected using Kinesis, and they've kind of separated out real time from batch in terms of how you process. And so I think that uh, this has been a very successful outcome from them. Um, if we look at Equinox, um, so here's basically what uh, they're responsible for. I'm sure a lot of you use Equinox as well. And um, you know, they have a lot of clubs, and a lot of studios, a lot of different offerings, as well as central capabilities to encourage people to you know, go to the club right? and uh, utilize their services, and, you know, as well as value-add services like their spa and whatnot. So a lot of their world is about um, trying to support connected insights from both the digital products that their uh, end users use, like you know, my phone and Apple Health, as well as the equipment itself inside the clubs. Right? So for example, gamifying the cycling experience at SoulCycle, or you know, digital assessments and location tracking and whatnot. Um, so what they're doing is um, moving data from a variety of places, both their own data as well as uh, you know, Adobe and uh, other social information that they have access to to get processed with Informatica and EMR into Redshift and then out into a series of subject layer data marts uh, using Postgres and out into their presentation layers and going in and out of their data lake. And so that's another very common uh, frame here that you basically data warehouses and data lakes aren't an either or decision. Most people are using both. And uh, here's a picture on their overall pipeline where you know, Adobe Analytics, which is basically how they you know, collect information on their uh, work to sort of promote things, it goes into S3, goes transformed into Parquet, gets saved to their data lake every day, is used in Athena to, add, uh, to alter the table to add a partition, and then is made available through Glue and through Redshift Spectrum, which is how we int integrate Redshift with the data lake. Okay, and their um, basic benefits from this is, is that you know, they've done a big replatforming from a prior solution. They built uh, two apps in just four months, and that's pretty nice. And um, you know, they basically have a lot of uh, other you know, traditional benefits that you can read there. So that's kind of the data lake story. I think you're all probably looking at data lakes when I talk to customers in general, pretty much everybody's looking at data lakes. So let's get to the part that you're probably gonna disagree with, at least in part, which is where we need to rethink what we mean by what is data and what is the analysis of the data and what do we use it for? So you know, what you see up there is a picture of a tablet with a set of information that's streaming off of operational data. And you know, that's kind of a very nice version of what most of us think of as analytics today and what we think of as data today, right? Um, but you know what? This is data, right? That's, uh, so I'm going to give up a set of Amazon examples here. So that's an, obviously an Echo device. And you know, we think about Echo with respect to the speaker we have on our desk or in our bedroom or whatever. But really what makes the Echo interesting is the fact that 
you know, what are the questions that people ask it? And more importantly, what are the questions that we were unable to get answered for you? Right? And that's how it gets better, that feedback loop. What weren't we able to understand? What question did we end up having to say, oh, you know, I didn't know how to do this, and so on, right? And because the very self-same hardware appliance gets better based on the data that's in that continual feedback loop. This is also data. So this is uh, someone shopping at an Amazon Go store. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of people like Safeway and Albertsons and so forth that have, uh, you know, these cards, right? And you can, they get a lot of insight into what you buy at the end of this day. What they don't get insight into is your customer journey. So if you think about the Go store, we can uh, pay attention to the path you walk through a store, what things you picked up and put back, what you looked at, perhaps, on, uh, uh, you know, in, to say, like, did you look at the nutrition label before putting it back or something else, right? We don't necessarily do all of that today, but you, know, you get the concept of how now that's integrating video into the data experience and why, you know, and there's, that's a lot of data that we might be collecting, but we're throwing away today in many other environments, right? And you can see how that's valuable. Like, for example, you know, so I'm a Safeway shopper. And, uh, you know, they have uh, things that are coupons, but they're coupons for everyone in the store, right? They aren't tailored to me, right? It doesn't say, hey, on the rug, you bought this Cabernet, here's two bucks off of it, right? It's uh, sort of whatever uh, I might be buying or not be buying, you know, it's true for all Safeway shoppers. It's not very personalized. This is also data. So this is Prime Now with one hour delivery. You know, I, I chose not to use a picture of a drone here because that seems high tech. That's just some guy pedaling on a bicycle, right? But he's still delivering product within an hour. And you know, like, let's say my wife asks me to go and buy, you know, replace a bunch of uh, you know, toilet paper. It takes me about an hour to get to the store and back. I mean, I find it remarkable that Amazon is able to pick and pack and ship something, not just to me within an hour, but also several other people on my route and do it cost-effectively, right? And think about how that transforms the customer experience, right? That you're now, you know, I can do something else with that hour in my day, right? But I'm still getting, uh, you know, the things I need, right? And so that's the customer experience point here. And that's kind of the core of what, we, what I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is um, you know, we often use data to optimize our transactions, but we don't often use data to really more deeply engage with our customers. And so the question is, how do we do that? And how does that change the data that we collect? How does that change what we do with the data that we collect? Right? So, that doesn't mean that reporting analysis, modeling, planning, et cetera, are going away. They'll be around forever, right? But uh, I think it's just a question of what, we, what else we do with data. So I'm going to go through a couple of examples here. So I was on a plane recently, you know, 18-hour flight from San Francisco to Dubai on my way to India. And uh, 
I, like everyone on that flight, basically have a screen in front of me, and you spend a lot of time watching movies, right? Because what else are you going to do? There's a lady to my left who's you know, maybe 75 years old. There's a gentleman to my right who's maybe 22. We all have the same screen in front of us. Not the physical screen, but the sequence of choices. Now, the airline I was traveling knows my gender, knows my age, knows where I live, knows where I'm traveling. Uh, you know, why wouldn't we use cohort analysis to decide what we should see? I mean, rather than assuming that all of us want to watch The Avengers, right? Which is a very popular movie. You know, if you haven't seen it, you should. But uh, you, um, that doesn't mean that all of us have the same interests, right? So that's just cohort analysis. But we also all provide social exhaust out there. One of us is going to a wedding. One of us is going to a job interview. One of us is going to a, chi um, a child's birth or grandchild's birth. How does that change what we want to see, right? And uh, I can tell you this, if it were Google or YouTube, you know, Google YouTube or Facebook on there, they'd be monetizing 18 hours of my undivided attention, right? It wouldn't be just something where they're saying, uh, Oh, you know, let's keep the guys, you know, sophophorically quiet so he doesn't uh, keep bothering the, uh, you know, flight attendants, right? Which, I mean, is value, but, you know, I think they, you, there's more value there to be unlocked. Let's take another example. So I often think about uh, the world in you know, be the world I'm in and the world I manage is actually fairly complicated. It's a little bit too complicated for me. So I try to do an analogy of what would I be doing if I were running a small coffee shop, right? And so if I were running a coffee shop, I'd know all of my regular customers. I'd know what their drink, uh, favorite drink was. I'd know whether they just want that coffee pushed across in the morning because they just need to get caffeinated or they want to talk about sports or politics or whatever. I'd probably read a little bit about it before the store opened in the morning so I'd know what to talk to them about. You know, so let's say Anurag's coffee ends up becoming popular. It's more like Phil's or Pete's. You know, I can aspire to Starbucks someday, right? I, um, would I not want that same quality of service? Of course I would. So imagine there's a, a camera with recognition running on it, and it knows who's coming in the door. Imagine there's some um, audio so it knows what your conversations tend to be. And imagine it just pops up. Okay, this is Anurag. Say hi to Anurag. And you know, he generally wants a grande latte. And uh, you know, he's interested in whatever, the 49ers. Right? And so you can say something. Right? And it sounds like, for the barista in front of you, like it's an uh, experience and it's part of a relationship. Right? And I've been starting just to sort of train myself in this new process looking at all of the transactions I'm part of nowadays and thinking about them as if they were instead relationships that I could be building or they could be building. So for example, we all checked in recently into a hotel, right? So you, know, you provide your credit card, you provide your, uh, 
you know, you know, driver's license or whatever other ID you have, and you know, they give it a transaction, and you know, off you go, and they're you know very polite and nice and you know efficient and so forth, and so they're optimizing the transaction flow. Let's imagine instead that there was a camera that recognized me as I came in the door, and um, you know, instead they were saying to me, "Oh, Mr. Gupta." I see this, you're at re, you must be here for reInvent, and I noticed this, this is your seventh reInvent. You know, you're one of the old timers here, aren't you? Um, so I've already got your badge ready, so you don't have to check in somewhere else for that. And I know you're not a gambler, but I thought maybe you'd like a show, and I've integrated, by the way, with your calendar. And you know, I see that there's this you know, one spot on your schedule on Wednesday night, and uh, you know, I think you like sushi, so I've got a reservation ready for you at Sushi Samba, and uh, you know, it'll be held for you for 24 hours. It's a totally different experience, right? And uh, I benefit from it as a consumer, and my hotel benefits from it, right? And. The fact is, is that you know, like economically, we're taught that you know people care a lot about the small differences. The fact is, I don't actually know whether uh, Pete's or Starbucks is you know ten cents more expensive or less expensive. I kind of know which one I like in terms of, and it's much more about the service, the person behind the counter, the Wi-Fi, whether it's crowded, you know, all of those sorts of things, than it is about the particular product. And I think we sort of need to move towards that relationship model in general. And data can help us get there. So the, you know, as we think about more data and different data, you know, presumably the applications also change, right? So one of the things that one might do is manufacture events, like Singles Day or Prime Day and so forth. So we run a lot more packages through a fulfillment center on Prime Day. And uh, so you can see that DynamoDB is a system that ran 3.34 uh, trillion uh, requests on uh, Prime Day, which is a pretty extraordinary number. You know, we don't normally talk about trillions, right? And uh, you know, 12.9 million a second—that's crazy. And um, you know, so there's this basic notion about systems that seamlessly scale up and scale down while providing a consistent experience. Why is consistency so important? Because people get frustrated within a second or two, right? And uh, so you kind of need to provide that regardless of how successful you are, right? I mean, you have to plan for success just as much you have to plan against failure. So I think these sorts of systems uh, matter a great deal. Change over time matters a great deal. You know, increasingly we're gonna be looking at IoT sensors, vehicle telematics, application logs, you know, a lot of the things I talked about previously referenced um, architectures that were deeply integrated with a short-term experience 
from someone coming in the door to my having all the information in front of me on the screen to be able to serve that request as a relationship request in the context of other relationships I had. So you kind of need that to be able to pull that at pace through a time series database. And you know, you've seen us announce TimeStream today. We think it's going to be interesting. We do see ledger databases as an emerging need. Um, and in part because of the integration across data silos, right, and across companies. So for example, in that hoteling example I gave before, I was integrating with my, catalog, with my calendar. I was integrating with Amazon's site. And that was the reason why I was, a, yeah, and as well as maybe the hotel, uh, hotel's uh, reservation system for a particular restaurant. You know, in addition to the check-in process, right? And right now what happens? Right now you provide the same darn information to six people, possibly within the same transaction. And that's just frustrating, right? And uh, so at least within the transaction you don't want to. And you, know, you want to own the totality of the experience. So, you know, we have our own um, um, uh, ledger database, but um, you know, we think it's also important to integrate with uh, you know, whatever is available in open source. So you know, we have a managed blockchain as well, which integrates with Ethereum and Hyperledger Fabric. And you know, the goal of this is to integrate the lower level ledger capability that we've been using for some time with the APIs and environments to let people build the apps that they want already. So really the core of the point I'm making here is you know, the data has power, right? You, it has power if you amass it, make it available to, other, to as many people as you can, make it available through all the tools that you can, and you use it for far more than transactional optimization, right? Because you know, understanding things over time, understanding things to optimize relationships, and I think that's the way that at the end of the day we're going to have um, you know, enriched experiences, you know, both as consumers and uh, hopefully also as the you know, business people and business owners. That's actually my last slide, and it looks like I went through this talk really quickly. So um, I'm happy to take any questions that people may have. Or you can get, you know, get to your next hotel. Yes, sir. So the question was, um, what about data privacy? You know, how do you balance um, the information about that you're gathering and using with um, what you know people might want or not want shared? So my take on that is, really, if you make your avail information available to Facebook or Google or whatever, you've kind of made it ex available to anybody who's willing to pay, you know, two cents a click, right? And um, so that's point one. And I think people have moved towards more sharing. 
um, you kind of have to be careful not to make, to do it in a creepy way, right? So like the part of the example I gave you that may have felt uh, creepy was this notion of, you know, in the, uh, you know, reservation system example is the fact that I, you know, they knew that I liked sushi. So I might be able to frame that in another way, like saying, you know, I've got reservations at a couple of different places here that are pretty popular, you know, sushi samba or, you know, uh, maybe pick an Italian place or whatever, right? And uh, then you kind of know where the person's going to go, but, you know, you've got your backup options, right? And, you know, maybe I'll change my mind about what I want to eat today anyway, right? And uh, so I think those sorts of things help, but, uh, you know, it has to be done with a level of delicacy for sure, right? The question for me is, um, are you more likely to help or to offend? And I think, by and large, people like feeling that they're involved in a relationship that, and people know who they are interacting with and they remember those folks, you know, even if that's uh, something that, uh, you know, is more institutionalized memory than, you know, the specific person at the desk in front of them, right? We all feel like we're kind of VIPs at that point, right? And they do treat VIPs like that. Why can't I be a VIP? Anything else? Yes, sir. So the question was, uh, in, will Lake for Formation support uh, cloud formation templates, right? And um, in time, I think there's a, a desire to have all services available through cloud formation because it's kind of the way things are built nowadays in AWS. Um, I think of Lake Formation as perhaps more analogous to cloud formation. You, know, you can see it in the name than maybe something that you'd want to use. So CloudFormation, I think of as something I want to do to, do, to complete a sort of a short-term task. Not some, you know, this is something that you might take days or maybe weeks to complete in terms of constructing a lake. So we're trying to eat away time much the same way CloudFormation does. So I'll have to get more um, tread on the tires uh, to uh, determine what uh, how people are using it uh, to determine what I can automate and simplify, you know, perhaps through CloudFormation. But you know, we can talk afterwards about how you're using CloudFormation for your lake, and maybe we, you know, that might give me, help me uh, define the service. Yes. I'm sorry, could you say that again? Uh, what do you, uh, so the question is, what do I think about data virtualization? What do you mean by data virtualization, maybe? Oh, I see. So um, uh, data lakes versus uh, data virtualization. Uh, so you're talking about like federated data versus centralized data. So I don't necessarily think of it as a either or question. So. I think your data catalog and your data lake, in some sense, should be able to support data that resides in a multitude of places. 
So lake formation won't do that in our initial launch, but I think it's something that we just kind of want to support in a long-term basis, mostly because it removes one step of uh, data movement, right? I mean, the data lake itself prevents you from having a many-to-many -many mapping, um, you know, much as you know, data warehouses used to. But it's even better if you can just say, like, hey, for my hot data, let me just get it where it is, right? And so I think people will want that. Um, in general, people will also want the ability to have all of that hot data eventually make it to the lake. Right, so I think sometimes people think of um, federated data access as a uh, way to avoid using a lake, but I think that that may be, at least in my view, not correct because I think that what that uh, leads towards is a world where you, know, you still end up with the deletions happening in those source systems and they generally aren't initially uh, architected to deal with the same kind of scale points as you know, S3 and you know, the low cost, right? And so that, I think, is what leads you to end up wanting your data inside uh, a lake in addition. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Or sir, sorry. Uh, so the question was, so I can't afford to store all my data, particularly video style things, which are 10 to 100x the size of my audio, which is 10 to 100x size the, uh, my uh, you know, uh, transactional information, right? And so what do I do? How do I draw that line? And so I think the question there kind of comes to one of, um, there's one line which is what's useful to me now, right? And that line is a fairly deep cut on your data. And then there's a second line which is what might be useful to someone, right? And uh, that line might be, okay, I'm gonna keep it for a day, a week, or whatever. And that might let someone have a place to play with something, right? And if they build something that's useful, as long as the value of it is, exceeds the cost, I'm in a good place, right? But I know one thing, which is if I don't store it, no one's gonna build an app to use it, right? So it's one of that potential energy kinds of questions, right? So you at least need enough of it there to be able to get some value, right? Maybe you know, some portion of the stores or whatever, right?
Yeah, so the uh, question there was about, hey, so you had a lot of components on those slides, and aren't there just as many opportunities for aggregation as disaggregation with respect to functional things? For example, um, um, ML and SQL. So I would say that you're absolutely right. There should be a integration of ML-style capabilities into SQL, starting with the notion of supporting sparse matrices as a first-class uh, component of SQL, just as sets are today. And then you could say, like, I generate a sparse matrix from a uh, join and filter and whatever out of a, you know, uh, in SQL, but then I can manipulate that sparse matrix as a baseline data type, you know, using some set of more um, ML-ish or stats-ish, um, you know, capabilities. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, you know, that might let you do some portion of what you can do in, you know, SageMaker right in your data warehouse or whatever system you're using to do SQL, but it's not going to have the totality of capabilities, right? And so I think it's, an, as you point, rightly point out, it's not an either or, but um, it's a question of when do you go to that higher end capability versus the more baseline capability, right? Did that answer make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anything else? Yes, sir. So the question was, uh, basically, ingestion's a dirty job. I mean, I'm pulling it from lots of different places. Is there anything that simplifies it? Um, nothing sufficiently good, you know, I would, is, would be my answer. And I think that at core, that is uh, the lack of, the, of an application of machine learning, right? Because if you think about it, Every time Adobe Omniture changes a format, all of us go out and add a column, right? That should happen once for our two million customers, right? Because it's a shared format, you know, like a lot of us are using Omniture as an example, right? As a, you know, different example, you know, we all have street addresses. We all are trying to get to conformed street addresses. That should be something that could be easily cleansed, particularly by a company that maybe has a pretty decent mapping of street addresses, at least in the United States, right? And as an example, right? And uh, so there are capabilities that you could knock off because they provide shared value, right? And then beyond that, I think um, it comes to this notion of recognizing commonality of type, right? And materializing that in terms of the metadata around something. This isn't a var car. This is a street address. This isn't a var car. It's a person's first name not their last name, right? And that actually depends, uh, depend, you know, where they come from, which one is which, right? Um, in terms of salutation, right? And uh, this isn't uh, a, a Varkar, it's actually a um, zip code because it's got a dash in it, but so is this other thing that you thought was a number, right? So those things, uh, you know, where somebody just had a five-digit zip code. So those things, I think, can all be done um, 
And you know, it's one of the things where I think in time the cloud is uh, going to have access to more data and be able to democratize uh, sort of the, um, the learning and the training that we do across data versus any individual customer. But uh, is it there now or is it close to there now? No. Is it something we're aware of that we need to get done someday? Yes. I think we're done. So thank you all very much.